pressure. Point is pushed wide right. Have to try to stop the run. Easy touchdown. Extra points wow. is missed again. And now Maher misses again. He's missed three tonight, four in a row. And he has done it again. They might be looking for a kicker next week. I, he yeah. missed. Bobby's like he missed again, yes. Actually, I said he missed three field goals. <laughs> he goes extra point. Four, I mean, four. some days you just, you're off, right? Yes, it it's happens to all of us. Day. I think a lot of people always want to make history when they're in the NFL playoffs, but not like, yeah. not like that. So they say when you're, when like your day is, when you have a bad day like that, you should just go home. Go to bed. Just go home and go to bed. A kicker meltdown for the Cowboys, but they still get the W. We're going to talk about that. Hello, everyone. But also ahead, an election denier who lost his race by a landslide is now accused of hiring a group of gunmen to shoot up the homes of Democratic lawmakers. One of his alleged targets is going to join us live. And are there more classified documents out there at Biden's residences? What CNN has learned about additional searches that could be on the way at locations tied to President Biden. Also this. When were you first made aware about some of these allegations around Santos? I never know all about his resume or not, but I always had a few questions about it. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy now acknowledging he had questions about the resume of George Santos. He is weighing in after downplaying the freshman congressman's lies and resisting calls to oust him from the GOP conference. It is a very busy Tuesday morning. We're going to begin with New Mexico with more on fail former Republican State House candidate Solomon Pena. He was angry that he lost his election last fall and claimed that the vote was rigged. Now he is in police custody in connection to orchestrating four shootings at homes of Democrats. It happened in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Police say Pena was the mastermind and allegedly conspired and paid four others to carry out the shootings on the lawmakers' houses. To note, no one was injured. The evidence that we have is not only firearm, but it's also from cell phones and electronic records, surveillance video, and uh, multiple witnesses inside and outside of this conspiracy that have helped us weave together uh, what occurred. On the last shooting, we now have evidence, too, that Pena himself went on this shooting and actually pulled the trigger on at least one of the firearms that was used. So this particular shooting took place at State Senator Linda Lopez's home. The gun Pena was using malfunctioned, but authorities say another shooter at the scene shot a dozen rounds. Pena, an election denier, visited three of the targets unannounced in November after he lost his election for state house. Later this month, he tweeted in support uh, that one, I should say, in support of former President Trump, declaring that he never conceded his race, even though he lost in a landslide 48 points behind his opponent. Here's Albuquerque's mayor. This type of radicalism is a threat to our nation, and it has made its way to our doorstep right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But I know here we are going to push back, and we will not allow this to cross the threshold. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, this was about a right-wing radical, an election denier who was arrested today, and someone who did the worst imaginable thing you can do when you have a political disagreement, which is turn that to violence. That should never be the case. Well, next hour, we're going to speak with County Commissioner Adrian Barboa, one of the lawmakers whose homes was shot, her reaction to his arrest straight ahead. And now this. Thank you. Thank you. 
President Biden there declining to answer questions from reporters. He's a little bit far away from them, as you can see. After the revelation, though, that additional documents were found at his home in Wilmington, Delaware, the discovery has provided more ammunition to Republicans who have already vowed to launch investigations and are asking for who had access to that location in Wilmington and to the private office where documents were initially found. Well, we don't know exactly uh, yet whether they broke the law or not. I will accuse the Biden administration of not being transparent. Why didn't we hear about this on November 2nd when the first batch of classified documents were discovered? So far, the Biden team has searched the president's two private homes in Delaware and his office at a think tank in Washington. But now multiple sources tell CNN additional searches could happen in other properties that are linked to Biden. CNN's Paula Reed is live in Washington. Paula, kind of what is on the table here of what they could be looking for, given you know, they found these documents at these locations? Do they still have questions about whether there are more documents at other places? Yes. And in a situation like this, that is a problem. And remember, they're not just looking potentially for classified material. They're also potentially going to look for any other presidential records that need to be returned to the archives. Now, our sources have not identified specific additional locations that could be searched, but we know Biden used other office spaces and his family has rented a home in northern Virginia. Now, when they found this initial batch of classified information at his former office, his team specifically targeted for searches locations where they knew documents had been shipped during the 2017 transition, and that included that former office and his two homes. But again, there are other spots that could potentially be searched, and that's an open question right now that will likely have to go to special counsel Robert Hur. Well, I think the question here is also who would be doing the searching here, because it was his personal attorney's who found them initially, they handed them over to the Justice Department. I know the Trump situation is different. They had actually hired outside of people to go and search Trump's properties when that was happening. Who would actually do these searches if there are more that are carried out? Well, of course, there's no playbook for how a sitting president should conduct a search for classified information from the time he was vice president. There's a very small group of people who can actually do this kind of work. The Biden team has made the choice, as you noted, to have his attorneys do this, both a private attorney and one of the White House attorneys who has a clearance. But that gets real messy. Uh, we've been told that you have a private attorney who finds something, then the person with clearance needs to come in and then hand it off to the Justice Department. But I, I think it's really interesting. In our reporting, we learned that the U.S. attorney in Chicago who originally was asked to do the review of that initial batch of classified documents. He didn't ask for additional searches. He didn't conduct additional searches. The Biden team did this voluntarily. He didn't even wait for all these searches to be completed before appointing a special counsel. So now that special counsel will likely have to confer with the team to figure out how to proceed if they want to do any additional searches. Yeah. All right. We'll be watching closely. Paula Reed, thank you. All right, now to the wreckage from that attack on an apartment building in Dnipro, Ukraine. It has now been 90% dismantled. Survivors have been found at the site. 41 people, though, this morning are confirmed dead, and four of them are children. 25 others are still missing. Uh, Ukraine's first lady, Elena Zelensky, uh, slamming the Russians for the attack in a speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Listen to this. These people, ordinary people, at home on a Saturday, and that's enough reason for Russia to kill. There is nothing of limits for Russia. As we speak, in our city of Dnipro, people are still working and working and sorting through the debris of a residential area of a house that was destroyed by an anti-ship missile. This missile was built to destroy aircraft carriers and was used against the civilian infrastructure. 
That was Olena Zelensky, the first lady of Ukraine. Let's go back to our Fred Plekton, who joins us live again this morning on the ground in Dnipro. Uh, so the death toll has gone up from that uh, attack. What else can you tell us this morning, Fred? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Poppy. And, and, you know, officially, this is still a search and rescue operation, the Ukrainians say, that's being conducted here. However, in reality, this right now is a recovery operation. Really, over the past day or so, it's only been bodies, unfortunately, that the crews here have been pulling out of the, the wreckage or what's left of that building that was hit by that missile. And since then, the mayor's office has now come out and said that the death toll has now actually jumped to 44 killed. Four more bodies were found this morning, including the body of a child. Needless to say, that causes a lot of grief on the ground here and a lot of anger as well. Here's what we're learning. While rescue crews are still sifting through the debris, the chance of finding any more survivors is virtually zero. A gaping hole where dozens of families once lived. As you can see here, this building was completely annihilated all the way down to the ground floor. And the Ukrainians say the reason why the damage is so extensive is that the Russians used a cruise missile called the KH-22. That is designed to destroy whole aircraft carrier strike groups. And when it hit the building, the building just completely collapsed and buried dozens of people underneath. A miracle that anyone survived at all, Ukrainian authorities say. Katarina Zilenska was pulled from the rubble by rescuers hours after the strike, but her husband and one-year-old son remain unaccounted for. And this video shows happier times for the Koronovsky family. Father Mikhailo Koronovsky was killed in their apartment, their distinctive yellow kitchen, like their family, torn apart by the massive explosion. 15-year-old Maria was also killed in the blast. Dozens of relatives, classmates and teachers coming to pay their final respects. She was an incredible child, her class teacher says. God is taking the best of ours. This is what happened. The Kremlin denies its forces were behind the strike and instead claims a Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile hit the building. The Ukrainians say that simply isn't true, and Dnipro's mayor tells me his city and the country need more Western air defense systems. Western countries give us air defense systems, he tells me, but unfortunately it's not enough and it comes with delays. More air defense systems are the only thing that can save our civilians in our cities. The Ukrainians say they had no chance of stopping this missile that crashed into the residential building, killing scores in an instant. And you know, Poppy, it was so interesting that you mentioned the Ukrainians are saying that 95% of the debris had already been cleared. They're also saying that's about 8,500 metric tons of debris that they've hauled away. And still, they are finding bodies underneath that rubble. Needless to say, that's causing a lot of anger. In fact, the Ukrainian president has vowed to bring those who are responsible in front of an international court. Poppy. Yeah. Fred Plankton, thank you for the reporting in Dnipro, Ukraine. After weeks of high demand that stretched supply and emptied shelves, drugstores are now changing their policies on over-the-counter fever medicine for children. Joining us now, senior medical correspondent, Dr. Tara Narula. Okay, good morning. Good morning. Good news for some, but possibly, I mean, what's happening with these limits? I guess the concern is 
maybe some parents might hoard and other parents won't get. What's going on? Well, let's hope not. And I do think some parents are breathing a sigh of relief, Poppy, myself, that they may not have to hunt as far and wide for some of these medications. And some of these drugstores are changing their policies. But it is a sign of hope, a glimmer that maybe things are changing, that that supply is meeting that increased demand. So we know that Walgreens has basically ended their limit purchase for online purchases of these kids' fever and pain-reducing medications. CVS still has a two-product limit in store and online. We did reach out to Rite Aid and have not heard back from them yet. You know, we also, as we were talking about this, talking about the RSV numbers, the flu numbers that we've been seeing, the combination of them and how it was affecting hospitalizations. What is it? Have we peaked or what does it look like as we're now here in mid-January? So there is some good news with respect to that as well. You know, COVID cases we've seen really go up over the last couple of months, but really flu and RSV, according to the CDC, have peaked. And so flu cases we know are still higher, very high in about half of states. We are seeing overall numbers really coming down. Um, on average, we've seen about 24 million illnesses total for the flu, over 200,000 hospitalizations, 16,000 deaths. And in that first week of January, still about a little over 12,000 in terms of hospitalizations. Vaccination rates we talked about low, particularly among kids. About 48% of kids got vaccinated. That was by the end for of what? December. For flu? For flu. For flu. Yeah. And 40% for adults. So, you know, this is pretty common in the states for those low vaccination rates. And we keep trying to emphasize how important That's- that is for flu. Uh, and RSV, in terms of where we are in the numbers uh, in general, we're talking about five out of a thousand kids that were hospitalized who were under the age of five for RSV. So again, I think really uh, a sign of hope for parents who were worried about those young kids uh, that we are seeing these numbers come down. Yeah, definitely a good sign. Doctor, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, in sports this morning, the Cowboys eliminating the Buccaneers from the playoffs, meaning speculation over Tom Brady's future can, can officially begin. The greatest quarterback of all time struggled throughout the game. The Bucs fell behind early and didn't get their first point until the Cowboys were up 24-0 afterward. Brady was asked about what he's going to do next. I'm going to go home and get a good night's sleep as good as I can tonight. And, and uh no, I'm not. You know, I, this has been a lot of focus on you know this game. So, yeah, it's just be one day at a time, truly. One day at a time. We'll see. Despite the huge win, Dallas kicker Brett Maher set a playoff record that no one wants. He missed four straight extra points. No kicker has missed as many as three in a playoff game since the NFL started keeping track back in 1932. He missed more in this game than he did in the entire 17-game regular season. Maher finally kicked one through the uprights on his fifth try. Can I, can I say two things here? Yes. One, he has had a great season. So, yes, he had a horrible game last night, but Mars had actually a pretty good season. And we're talking about Tom Brady and his future. Dak Prescott, the Cowboys quarterback, had an incredible game last night, and there had been a lot of criticism of him going into this. Well, I mean, he did break a record? Just not the one you want to break. <laughs> I mean, but still. Oh, Maher? Yeah. yeah. Brady, I mean, who knows? You never know with Brady, but I think, like, I won't say it. We shall okay. see. Uh, he once bragged that he had killed enough people to fill a cemetery, but now, after 30 years on the run, a notorious mafia kingpin is behind bars. What finally led to his capture? Plus, exactly. When did Republicans, when did they realize George Santos might be a fraud? New admission from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
House Speaker Kevin McCarthy now says he has harbored his own doubts about George Santos's resume. When were you first made aware about some of these allegations around Santos? I never know all about his resume or not, but I always had a few questions about it. He didn't raise those questions after Election Day when he wrote on Twitter that George Santos will be a great leader and conservative voice for the people. He also didn't really raise those objections the week after that when he was hailing Santos's Jewish heritage, another claim that, as we know now, turned out to be a lie. I really want to talk about who's the makeup of this new majority. You heard from some of all already. You know, with Max Miller in Ohio, George Santos in New York, and you had David Kustoff from Tennessee get reelected. He introduced him. Do you realize we have the largest Republican Jewish caucus in more than 24 years? McCarthy, in the last few weeks, has downplayed the revelations about Santos, how he fabricated key details about his background, even as he's come to under the scrutiny of prosecutors. McCarthy acknowledging that he may not actually be able to get a security clearance. I don't see any way that he's going to have top secret. If you're referring to George Santos, he's got a long way to go to earn trust. But the one thing I do know is you, you apply the Constitution equal to all Americans. The voters of his district have elected him. We should note the lies from Santos actually even extended to McCarthy himself after it was reported that earlier in 2021, a Santos aide was caught impersonating McCarthy's chief of staff while soliciting campaign donations. It happened, and I know um, they corrected, but I was not notified about that till uh, a later date. Yeah, I didn't know about it till a later date, though, unfortunately. Abby Ellen joins us now. She is a journalist and longtime New York Times contributor. She studied lying after being conned by her former fiancé, who once even told her he helped capture Osama bin Laden. He did not. Abby turned her experience into a book about compulsive liars, called Duped, Double Lives, False Identities, and the Con Man I Almost Married. So I guess you have a lot of perspective on George Santos. Yeah, I have a lot of perspective on George Santos. Um, There's something wrong with him. (laughs) I mean, this is not normal behavior. This is absolutely not normal, except for the fact that it kind of is normal. So I was going to say, is it not normal? Well, it's the extent extent that he's lying, the extent that he's making up these these things, these fabrications, that is not normal. That is, there's a debate whether or not that's a mental illness or if it's a symptom of a mental illness, right? So in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Bible, there's nothing pathological or lying. Or does exist. psychologist. Right, exactly. And that does not exist. There's nothing in there about pathological lying. But it's a symptom of borderline personality, narcissistic disorder. So it's a symptom of something else. And there's debate about whether it should be its own problem. I, um, I haven't read your book, but I, I read a lot about it in yeah. your story, which is fascinating. You are a very intelligent person, obviously, and you got duped, the title of your book. And a lot of voters got duped. And there was a failure on many levels. Yeah. Um, journalists, failure on journalists, the media for not seeing this sooner, um, on everyone. But why do you think so many voters were able to be duped by him on every level? Because people see what they want to see. And the biases are exactly where you want them to be. So if you like Donald Trump, you're going to say, nah, what he did with the things, that's fine. There was no problem with the documents, right? If you like Biden, you're going to say, no, there was no problem with what he did. We see what we want to see. We believe what we want to believe, right? And so there was, what, 142,000 people who voted for Santos. What I don't understand is how he was able to 
get elected, you know, get in office. Why nobody said after the articles came out about him, why nobody said, no, you're out. I don't get okay, it. They can't constitutionally. They can't. They but but him. but there it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me why. And what, what I think it is, is that they all lie. Everybody lies. So if, if we, there was a, we wouldn't have a government. There was a piece I read uh, this weekend in The Guardian. It says the congressman's many lies are the product of, of a political system that incentivizes dishonesty and pushes sincerity. And then it talks about, it said, if you take his fictional biography as a whole, it is clear that Santos was appealing to a particular, a particular American longings. He was quite savvily inventing a character who would assuage the anxieties and comfort the vanities of the affluent Republican-leaning voters in his district. So he was simply, is he, ship, shift, what do you call it? Shape shifting. Shape yeah. shifting. Yeah. Yeah, he's Ripley. And so, but how is that okay? Is it because people wanted to believe him? Yes. So it makes it okay? Everyone wants to believe the emperor has clothes. Right? People want to believe that. And they wanted to believe that this guy was who he said he was and more. And nobody questioned it. And, and apparently people knew that there was something off and they still let it go. Right? They didn't yeah. care because they needed him. So in the meantime... We're in, you know what, this thing is don't bothering worry, me. You yeah, don't worry, I don't need that thing. I want to say shape-shifting. It's shape-shifting, shape-shifting. <laughs> it but it's, yeah. you know, it's, he duped a lot of people. Yeah. And who's suffering for it? The public. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's questions because a lot of, you know, New York lawmaker, lawmakers that we've spoken with said they're not going to work with him. And so there have been questions about how his constituents will be served. And, you know, one thing we've heard from Republicans in Washington is, well, the voters elected him. Yeah, but they didn't know that he had built his campaign on a mountain of lies when they, Correct. When they did so. That's exactly right. They elected him on the lies. Because you have to trust. We have to trust. You know, every day we get in out of our houses and we trust. We trust that the car behind us is going to stop at the red light. We trust that the doctor is really a doctor, that the pilot's really a pilot. We trust that this person is telling the truth. He's a politician. This is what he's supposed to do. He's working for me, not against me. Okay, so before you go, Abby, then yeah. all of this research, the book that you did, so yeah. then what is the fix? Is there a fix or are we just doomed to? Is, are, is, are we going to just continue this cycle? Reagan, what did he say? Trust but verify. Trust but verify, right? Trust, verify, and still don't trust. <laughs> That's what, and you need, and and you need hard evidence, right? And we have that now about Santa. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah Abby, thank you. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank I think you. you bring up a very good point when when people say, um, Caitlin, that he was he was elected by the people, but the people elected something that was not necessarily true. If they knew who Santos was, I don't think that he would have been elected. I think that's fair to say that. It's fair to definitely question whether or not he would have. I mean, we won't really know unless he resigns or when he's up for re-election in two years. Yeah. So, thank see you. Abby. Thank Thanks you. so much for that perspective. No water to shower, no water to flush the toilet. Why hundreds of homeowners in Scottsdale, Arizona just got cut off from their city's water supply. Plus, egg prices are becoming more and more expensive. What is behind this uptick? CNN investigates straight ahead. You bring the eggs? Go get the eggs. There are eggs. We have eggs. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. Coming up, Tesla slashing prices on its electric vehicles by 20%. Our Christine Romans will explain why. Plus, Italy's most wanted mafia boss arrested after 30 years on the run. How he was finally caught and shading your ex all the way to the bank miley and shakira's new music hitting the top of the charts as breakup songs surge who they're singing about straight ahead but now arizona's drought conditions have reached a critical stage for a group of people in one community just outside of scottsdale arizona residents in the unincorporated community of rio verde foothills are suing the city 
to restore their water delivery services. They were cut off because of the extreme drought conditions in the Colorado River. That's where the majority of Scottsdale's water comes from. Last year, Scottsdale's water department told CNN in an email that they were being good neighbors in allowing this community to temporarily use that water supply. Well, the department said that due to the current water shortage, by law, it, quote, must dedicate its limited water supply to their residents. They started doing that at the beginning of this year, and now there is a crisis for folks. The mega drought plaguing America's West is the worst in 1,200 years. Look at this. These are images of Lake Mead, the nation's largest reservoir in volume. You can just see how much the water levels have decreased in the past two decades. That is because the levels of the Colorado River, which feeds right into Lake Mead, are also plummeting, affecting millions of people across seven states and in Mexico. Our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, is with us. I was just asking in the break, is this the same Colorado River crisis that is causing another issue in Colorado? So walk us through, I mean, this. can you imagine living there? You can't flush your toilet, you can't take a shower. But it's sort of like they've been living as if they were hooked up to the public water utility, the yeah. folks in this unincorporated town. They have 5,000 gallon tanks buried in their yards and a water hauler goes over to Scottsdale, loads up the truck, fills up the neighborhood until they don't, until it becomes the point where people start deciding who gets what. You know, the old saying that some attribute to Mark Twain, Whiskey is for drinking, water's for fighting in the American West. And that is the theme right now. Way too many people, not enough water. Places like Vegas have really learned to conserve even as population has grown. And so it's conserving every drop. When you say unincorporated, you mean that's because they're not part of that infrastructure. Exactly, exactly. And so I think the question is then, you know, for these people who feel like they've been slapped in the face with this, is why is there not any kind of alternative that they have here? That is the uh, question for the developers, you know, folks who buy some land and, and chop it up and sell uh, subdivisions there, they can do it unincorporated, and then it's really on the homeowner to decide where your water is coming from. And the homesteaders, that's, that was the attitude. A little different if you're a retiree moving from the Midwest and you're used to this sort of thing. But they voted to set up uh, another separate water taxing district, and unanimously the Maricopa board voted it down. And so that's where you kind of see people, you know, metaphorically pulling up the ladders around communities and saying, you know, maybe we don't need this rampant unchecked growth when we're in the middle of this mega drought. Yeah, with the urban sprawl or whatever, moving out into the suburbs, people know, like, when I was looking for my house, they were like, you're good. This house is on town water. This house is on town. Right? I was that, just going to say that. I big, think about that. That's a you don't, big thing now. You don't think about that in the yeah. East a lot or in the Midwest, but out West, that's everything. So this is a part of a much bigger problem. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the expert here, because you were just in my hometown, remember, in Baton Rouge, yeah, talking right, about yeah. the, the Mississippi River at its lowest levels ever. Correct. So and you can go around the world, the Yangtze, the Danube. There you go. So w then yeah. what's going on? On a planet that's that's warmed up by fossil fuels, it throws off the water cycle. It means too much water. And some at some points, as you're seeing in California for the last since Christmas, not enough in other places. And we built our society around that predictable water cycle that we're all so familiar with that had its peaks and valleys, especially in the arid west. But now it's sort of the past is no longer prologue. So we have to figure out how to adjust infrastructure, how to adjust, manage entire watersheds or basins like that. Katie Hobbs, the new manager right. or the new governor of Arizona, one of her first acts was to unseal this report that said this huge development plan for, for one part of Phoenix doesn't have enough water. 
Jeez. And so the law is if you develop in Arizona, you have to have water for 100 years. They did the math. This one section will fall short by four and a half million acre feet in uh, there. Mm-hmm. So and that when that gets into developers and real estate values, that's when the fighting and the howling starts. Wow. Bill Weir, thank you, you very much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. So if you're in the market for a new car, you may be able to afford a Tesla now. Maybe why the company is dramatically cutting prices. Also, an alarming broadcast showed a toddler waving around and pulling the trigger of a handgun on live television. We'll tell you who police now have in custody ahead. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. It is now not as, emphasis on as expensive, to buy a Tesla. The company cut prices by as much as 20%. This is an effort to try to spark new demand as rising interest rates pose challenges to the EV industry, and it gets more competitive. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here now. Uh, I mean, they're still, they're Tesla's expensive, but they're cheap. There you that's go. That's the technical, Thanks grammatically, yes. <laughs> but he wants you to be able to afford this new EV tax credit, and he wants to yeah. kind of inspire some demand if we're heading into maybe slower growth this year. He had a, Elon Musk had a really tough year last year. He lost more money in one year than I think anyone humanly has ever done in history. Yeah. I have to fact check that, but I'm pretty sure it's true. <laughs> and the company lost 65%, the share price of Tesla. So he is cutting prices aggressively here to try to inspire some demand here. And now more of these models will qualify Uh, for these new tax breaks, these new EV tax breaks. If you are in the market for an electric vehicle, this might be your year, especially early in the year. We're talking about a $7,500 EV tax break. So now uh, the baseline Model Y crossover for Tesla is now under 53000 So it will qualify for that. You can see the income limits. Those first two lines there are how much money you have to make less than those income limits to qualify for this free money from the government. Um, the high-performance version of the Model 3 sedan, now 53990 so it would qualify. Also, you've got um, GM and Toyota uh, uh, cars that now qualify as well because they've lifted that, the Inflation Reduction Act, lifted that 200000 car cap for how many cars could qualify for, for tax credits. So there's some tax credits. There are some lower prices. Um, you look at the Chevy Bolt. I think if you put that $7,500 tax credit on there, it's like a $20,000 car, a $19,000 car, which puts it cheaper. New. New. That puts it cheaper than some used cars. So I'm, I'm just saying 2023 might be the year of the EV for some people. Check all of the, you know, all the fine print. But it's kind of a, an interesting moment. And it looks like Elon Musk and Tesla trying to lower the price of some of those Tesla models so they can qualify. My question is... What do we know about once people have an electric vehicle? Do they stay with electric vehicles or do they go back to... It's so interesting because some of these cars and vehicles have cult-like status. Yeah. Tesla is one of those. Those Rivian trucks. I mean, right. people... The I was just looking at used Rivian trucks, which cost more than the new truck if you, you know, sign up for, for your... You have to get on a waiting list, you know, to get your, your Rivian um, a truck or SUV. There's like a cult status for some of these EVs. Oh. Others, though, I mean, there's a... There's a Mustang, that um, the EV that I drove with our, our auto writer, Peter Valdez de Pena, recently. Um, you know, there's the Chevy Bolt. There's some that are lower-cost cars, too, um, that they're working hard to, you know, fulfill the demand for those as well. So 10% of global car sales last year was EV. Did you I know that? I don't oh. know, but I don't think in our house I'm going to have a choice when we ever buy a new car because... Sienna doesn't even let me use plastic bags. Really? So, <laughs> that's she smart. is a New Yorker. But, you know, we Yorker. drive to Iowa. You drive to Minnesota, yeah. I'm sure. And yes. that's, that's the thing that I'm worried about. Like, how yeah, am yeah. I going to chart off that path? Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. Thank you, Roman. You're welcome. Much. You guys drive that far. <laughs> Do you see what it says in the prompter? It says egg, egg 
prices. It says expensive. Haha. Does it? <laughs> it no. did. Above. I did not. Oh. I was like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I was like, well, Poppy, are you seeing things this morning? But she actually does say expensive. <laughs> Egg prices, I thought you were calling me an egghead, which you do sometimes. Egg prices Not are up. Loud. Anyone who has been grocery shopping lately can't help but notice how the price for a dozen eggs has skyrocketed. So what is causing the price surge? Vanessa Yurkevich. Hello, Vanessa, <laughs> what is causing the price surge? Well, you know, many Americans would go to the grocery store, not think anything much about buying a dozen eggs, not really looking at the prices. It was considered and is considered a staple in American households. But just in the last year, there's been a big price increase. Started last year at about $125, uh, $179 for a dozen eggs. Now it's $425. And this is in part because of the deadly bird virus that started last spring and is catching up to us right now. In chilly Palmer, Alaska, the demand for chickens and their eggs is heating up. I was already sold out even before the egg storage. I was, I was selling everything I had. If you've been to the grocery store recently, you may have noticed fewer eggs and higher prices, up about 11% last month on average from November, up nearly 60% in the last year. 11.49 for a dozen eggs in New York, 10.99 in Hawaii. I think it's ridiculous. But to be that much. The highly pathogenic avian influenza or avian flu is largely to blame. Nearly 58 million birds and climbing have died across 47 states in the last year, a result of the deadly virus. Wild birds can carry the disease and spread it to domestic flocks when they migrate. One wild bird coming into their chicken run and next thing you know, 10 birds, 20 birds, 30 birds, they're just dropping dead. Some states now recommending that all poultry be maintained indoors. Poultry and bird shows canceled and biosecurity around chickens strictly enforced. The avian flu is serious. Egg shop with two cafes in New York City is struggling with prices on their main ingredient. The fall migration of wild birds sent avian flu cases spiking again. We go through seven to 9,000 eggs a week. So it's a significant amount of eggs. And in the last couple of weeks, they've jumped as high as 60%. How have you been able to absorb the high price increases of eggs? Unfortunately, we have raised all of our prices about 10% on our menu items. For some, the increased costs is too much. Baked After Dark Bakery in Nebraska will close its doors this weekend. I think about what our family could afford to pay for a cookie. I take that into consideration. We can't charge $5 a cookie. The ripple effect goes beyond restaurants and bakeries. Take a look around the grocery store. Items that use eggs, like mayonnaise, are up 11.8% in the last year. From the flu to the increases in uh, inflation, all combined together with the shortage, it is a perfect storm. They definitely have seen the prices shoot up recently. Does that stop you from making the purchase? No, not at all. I'm just buying things to make a chicken cutlet and you need eggs as the basis for that too. It's one of the reasons why there's no way not to purchase them. 
And some good news from the U.S. Department of Agriculture this week. They said that prices are starting to fall a little bit, but that supply remains light to moderate. And, you know, the holidays was really a time when there was a lot of demand for eggs. People were baking, people were cooking, but we're through the holidays now. So demand may be just a little bit lower. But, you know, it's not it's not fun to go to the grocery store and see eggs that are costing about $10.99 here in New York, Hawaii, same price. So just keep your eye out. Look for those cheaper prices in your egg aisle. Yeah. Guys. Thank you, uh, Vanessa. I sent a photo to you guys. I was in the grocery store the other day. And it was $3.99, which is high, but not as bad as 11 better. Obviously. Yeah. That's right. here in New York. So hopefully they'll come down. Up next, we're going to talk about one of the world's most wanted men who men who has been finally caught after 30 years on the run. How did this mafia vo- boss avoid being arrested for so long? We'll tell you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, Italy's most wanted man is now in police custody after 30 years on the run. Notorious mafia, notorious mafia boss Matteo Messina De Nero is thought to have ordered dozens of mafia-related murders and was given several life sentences in absentia. He once boasted that he could fill a cemetery with his victims. Sinan's Barbie Nadeau is live in Rome. Barbie, what are we learning about how this finally happened, given he has been evading, evading arrest for so many years? Yeah, you know, authorities here today, 24 hours after they've arrested him, are trying to unravel this protective network, which, of course, went back 30 years. They've uncovered his most recent hideout, but they're going to want to know where he's been and who protected him and how far up the ladder it went. Were there law enforcement officials or local governments involved in the in the cover-up in all these years? They're also looking at what's next, because just because he's behind bars, that doesn't mean the criminal enterprise is over. They want to know who's in charge now and how that handover went, Caitlin. Yeah, a lot of questions I imagine that they have. Barbie Nadeau, thank you. Coming up, this. Miley Cyrus, Shakira, both striking commercial gold by calling out their exes with revenge pop hits. Started to cry, but then remembered Apparently 2023 is the year to buy yourself flowers, maybe go after your exes. Two of the world's biggest stars, Miley Cyrus and Shakira, have both released new songs over the weekend that deliver scathing rebukes of their former partners. Cyrus's song Flowers that you hear there has been dubbed an ode to self-love. It is topping charts around the world after she released it on Friday, which just so happens to be her ex-husband Liam Hemsworth's birthday. Their on-again, off-again relationship ended in divorce in 2019, but her new single seems to be filled with jabs aimed directly at Hemsworth, driving fans wild with conspiracies about the song's lyrics. There's one line that says, We built a home and watched it burn. Many believe that could be a reference to their Malibu house, which burned down in a 2018 wildfire and has given plenty of fuel to feed those theories. Shakira, meanwhile, is not pulling any punches. Her new song, 
tears into her ex, Barcelona footballer Gerard Piquet, and his new girlfriend, and his mom even. After 12 years together, the couple, who have two sons together, split last year when she reportedly caught him having an affair. With lines like, quote, you traded a Rolex for a Casio, she is not exactly trying to hide who her latest song is about. <laughs> I love the Miley Cyrus song. I do I'll too. I'll stand up for that one. If it was guys doing this. What? what? Guys do that all the time. Guys do what? Sing it. Do we have time? <laughs> like if this was guys doing this, we'd be saying, oh my God, I cannot believe that he's talking about his ex-girlfriend. And she's also called, calling out the woman. She's like traded whatever for Casio. Like that's not very, now, I, look, I love, Miley's actually kind of, a little humble brag, at one of those pictures from the Oscar party, I was sitting right next to her. Tim and I were sitting next to her. Of course you were. And Liam, <laughs> is it Liam? Right. But I'm just saying, look, maybe there's a reason there's a double standard, but I just don't think it's right to ever call out your ex in a song. Like, own Really? It you can't on. sing about heartbreak? Yeah, I mean, that's fine, but still, if it's a double standard. Ahead on CNN this mm. morning. <laughs> CNN this morning continues right now. Official is an attack on democracy. Whoever that elected official is, Democrat or Republican, and we will hold people responsible for criminal conduct and make sure we do justice. Good morning, everyone. This is a really, really terrible story. So glad that you could join us on this Tuesday morning. This is about a failed Republican candidate in New Mexico has been arrested for allegedly hiring people to shoot at the homes of local Democratic officials we're going to speak to a commissioner who was targeted in moments. An early morning massacre in California, a mother and her infant among six people killed in what officials say may have been a drug cartel style execution. Also this morning, we have gotten some dramatic new video taken by a passenger who was on the plane moments before it crashed in Nepal. Plus. This is it. Of the two. Oh, oh wow. This is the child with the loaded weapon. Pulling the trigger right there. Pulling the trigger. Oh. Yep. Wow. Can you believe that? That is a toddler caught on camera waving around a loaded gun. His father is in custody this morning. That is a very disturbing story. We'll get to that. But first, a 17-year-old mom and her six-month-old baby are among six people who were killed early Monday morning at a central California home. The mother and child were both shot in the head. Police tell CNN the killings appear to be linked to a drug cartel. When you get straight to CNN's Josh Campbell, live in Los Angeles for CNN this morning. Josh, hello to you. What are you learning about this attack? Yeah, good morning, Don. And I'll warn our viewers that what I'm about to describe is graphic and disturbing. I'll walk you through the timeline. Police say that in the early morning hour yesterday, around 3 o'clock, they receive a 911 call of an active shooter in this residence in Tulare County, which is about three hours north of Los Angeles. Now, they dispatch deputies. It takes them several minutes to get there. This is a remote area. And as they're on, on their way to this crime scene, the dispatcher is getting other 911 calls, saying we're hearing shot after shot after shot. When authorities finally arrive, they don't find a suspect, but they find a gruesome crime scene. Authorities say that there were at least six people who were killed, including two people who were killed outside the residence, one who was in the doorway, as well as you mentioned, a 17-year-old mother and her six-year-old shot in the head. Uh, efforts are underway at this hour by police to try to find those who are responsible, Don. Have police identified a suspect, Josh? 
Well, I spoke last night with an official from the sheriff's office who says that they're describing this as a cartel-style execution. And what does that mean? We know that in the United States, uh, street gangs often engage in violence, but that uh, descriptor, a cartel-like execution, suggests an intensified level of uh, brutality and sophistication. Uh, we know that Mexican drug cartels, for example, have engaged in uh, egregious violence against their perceived enemies, going so far as to uh, deploy hit squads. The sheriff spoke yesterday about who they think they're looking for. Take a listen. We believe we have at least two suspects uh, at this point. Uh, we also believe that this is not a random act of violence. We believe that this was a targeted family. We believe that there are gang associations uh, involved in this scene. So at least two suspects, the sheriff says that they're looking for. Uh, and it's just important to note that they're still trying to piece all this together, looking at shell casings, the canvassing for witnesses, if they heard anything around that area. Interestingly, Don, one week ago, that residence itself was the sub subject of a, a search warrant and a narcotics case. So police are looking to determine if all of this is connected. All right. Josh Campbell, thank you. Now to New Mexico with more on this failed former Republican state house candidate, Solomon Pena, he was angry that he lost his election last fall. He claimed the vote was, quote, rigged. And now this morning he's in police custody in connection to orchestrating four shootings at homes of Democrats. This happened in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Police say that Pena was the mastermind and allegedly conspired and paid four others to carry out these shootings on the lawmakers' homes. To note, no one, thankfully, was injured. The evidence that we have is not only firearm, but it's also from cell phones and electronic records, surveillance video, and uh, multiple witnesses inside and outside of this conspiracy that have helped us weave together uh, what occurred. On the last shooting, we now have evidence too that Pena himself went on this shooting and actually pulled the trigger on at least one of the firearms that was used. And that last shooting they're talking about took place at State Senator Linda Lopez's home. The gun Pena was using malfunctioned. Authorities say another shooter at the scene shot a dozen rounds. Pena, an election denier, visited three of the targets unannounced in November after he lost his election for the state house. Later that month, he tweeted in support of former President Trump, declaring that he, quote, never conceded his race, even though he lost in a landslide 48 points behind his opponent. Just minutes from now, we're going to be joined by one of the county commissioners whose home was targeted. Commissioner Adrian Barbeau will join CNN this morning. And Poppy, CNN has obtained harrowing new video from inside the plane, purportedly showing the final moments before it crashed in Nepal on Sunday. The video is edited so nobody can be identified, and we are not showing the moment of the crash. But here it is. So that video was taken inside the cabin by a passenger who was streaming live at the time just before the flight went down in a fiery scene en route to a tourist hub in the Himalayas, killing 70 people on board. I want to get now to Vadika Sood, live in New Delhi, India, for CNN this morning. Good morning to you. So tell us about that footage. What's in this new footage? 
Morning, Don. You know, it's not very often that you get to see footage shot by a passenger just moments before a crash. This is one rare such footage. Now, what we do know is it was purportedly recorded by an Indian passenger who was on his way to Pokhara along with friends. But it's very important that our audience also gets to know that CNN has corroborated this video using flight manifest details going onto the website of this airline as well as geolocation. However, it's interesting how a representative of the Civil Aviation Authority in Nepal has said that this does not seem to be a video from inside the aircraft. But when pressed, he said he has no information, no technical evidence to support his claim, Don. But this could be extremely, extremely important in terms of evidence during the investigations, according to aviation experts, Don. Marika sued in New Delhi this morning. Marika, thank you so much. Also this morning, a frantic search is underway at an apartment complex in Dnipro, Ukraine, as it has grown more frantic. Search teams now say they don't expect to find any more survivors at the scene of the strike that has killed so far at least 44 people, including four children. Rescuers have already pulled several survivors out since the weekend attack, but almost all of the wreckage has now been dismantled, yet still 25 residents are missing. The First Lady of Ukraine has slammed the Russians for one of the worst attacks on civilians since the war began in a speech that she just delivered at the World Economic Forum in Davos. These people, ordinary people, at home on a Saturday. And that's enough reason for Russia to kill. There is nothing off limits for Russia. As we speak, in our city of Dnipro, people are still working and working and sorting through the debris of a residential area of a house that was destroyed by an anti-ship missile. This missile was built to destroy aircraft carriers and was used against the civilian infrastructures. Ukrainian officials say that a Russian KH-22 missile was used in that strike. It is designated to take out aircraft carriers, typically. So joining us now to talk about this is retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons. I mean, this is a weapon that is notoriously inaccurate. It is designed to hit large spaces. And so what do you make of the idea that here it is targeting this apartment complex where all these people were living? Okay, that's a weapon from the old Cold War. It's designed, like I said, to hit those naval aircraft carriers because it attacks from a high altitude. <clears throat> and the problem Ukraine has with it is they can't detect it. There's no early warning systems right now. But that doesn't matter to Russia. Russia's using it as a weapon of terror. They, all they have to do is put it close to any of these built-up areas, knowing it'll hit something. In this case, it unfortunately hit that apartment building. Yeah, and so when you say delivered at a high altitude, is the sense of how does this kind of thing hit? Because I was reading about this, and they were saying that's why it can cause so much damage is the way that it strikes. Yeah, let me show you on the map here. What happens is uh, backfire bombers come from, from Russia here and come into the, the Black Sea, and what happens is it's about a 400-mile range, and it, at about 30,000 feet at a very high altitude, it releases its missile, and then it, fl it comes down in this direction here. And then we'll, so any of these, any of these cities here along that coastline are threatened by this kind of weapon system because any of the early warning systems that Ukraine has can't pick it up from that level of altitude. Is the sense that they were even actually aiming for this apartment complex or were they just aiming for the Dnipro area generally? They were, they were just hitting that main uh, built-up area, using it as a weapon of terror. This uh, is old technology, but again, they don't have it. It flies at supersonic speed. Ukraine doesn't have anything from an early warning detection perspective. Well, which raises questions about what they do have. I know the United States is talking, uh, is obviously 
obviously sending that one Patriot missile defense system, but it seems like that it's just really a drop in the bucket, that they would need much more than just that one system to combat this. That's right. They need five or six. Uh, if you had a Patriot uh, battery in any of these areas here, it would protect all along this coastline into Odessa, make sure that any of these early warning systems that are coming from four or 400 miles or so away would at least have a chance. Right now, one Patriot battery likely just protects Kiev, and that's it. Um, but any of these other built-up areas are, are going to be, unfortunately, uh, exposed to this kind of terror weapon. So this is clearly a case that they do need more. I think that's what the Ukraine defense minister was saying when they said we don't have the capability to, to do it because of that standoff. The Russians have the capability to fire this at a standoff distance that they can defend it. Yeah. Major Meglines, thank you for that. That's really good perspective, really important here. All right, this morning, police in Texas launching a criminal investigation after a clouded leopard escaped from its zoo enclosure. Officials say the fence the four-year-old leopard named Nova escaped from was intentionally cut. The Dallas Zoo was forced to shut down Friday as workers searched for Nova. They did not consider her a threat to humans. Ketcherka say they eventually located her near the original habitat and... They were all they were able to safely secure her. She is being evaluated, but does not appear to be injured. So officials also found a similar cut in a monkey enclosure. No monkeys are on the loose. Well, this morning, chilling video shows a toddler in Indiana waving around and pulling the trigger of a loaded handgun. This actually happened on live television. Body camera footage shows police speaking with neighbors after they discovered the little boy. Open the door, he went to flip it up, and I shut the door, told everyone to get away from the door. I'm like, he, he, I was like, he has a gun. I mean, if a toddler in a diaper's walking around what with a handgun. What the hell was he? It took y'all that long to get to him. Well, it takes that long for no, the No, 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 no. I'm talking about the parents upstairs. Gene Casaros has been following the story and joins us now. How, how, how? This, this is happen? amazing. All caught on police body cam. So I just want to take you through it. This is Beach Grove, Indiana. And what happened is that the officers were called to an apartment complex because of a toddler with a gun. And so they get there and one of the neighbors is standing right there and she begins to tell them, I saw this toddler. He was waving around a gun, a real gun. Watch. So my son opened the door, and the little boy upstairs then stand there with fire. And I looked out the peephole, and he was standing there. Went on to say that she looked through the peephole, and there he was, hands behind his back. He brings him, and he points the guy and says, look at what I've got. That's what she said. So officers go to the apartment. You're going to watch them going into the apartment right now. And they said to the father... Uh, we believe your toddler had a gun. That's what they're saying. We've got to search. And they searched high and low in that apartment to see if they could find any gun. And you watch that. And they didn't find anything. Father said, there is no gun here. He did say, you know, relative of mine comes and he leaves a gun every now and then. But he said, my son is quick. I can't catch him all the time. So officers have to leave. They don't have a gun. And so they come back. They tell the neighbor we couldn't find the gun. One of the officers stays back, and she summons them to her iPhone, and lo and behold, she's got ring video from a neighbor that shows the toddler in the entranceway of the apartment complex with a gun, waving it around, pulling the trigger. And While so- While they're looking for it? Well, they go back to the apartment oh now. There is a gun. Yeah. And they go in the apartment, they search high and low, they find the gun, 
And from my observation of that video, they find it in a desk, carefully placed in a desk. The officer immediately unloads it. There were 15 rounds in that gun, but none of them were chambered. And because of that, as the toddler in diapers, basically, was pulling the trigger, it didn't go off. Father arrested, charged with neglect at this point. These are arresting charges. Remember, he said there's no gun, so his state of mind... Maybe he didn't know about the gun. However, the way it was placed, where it was, could the toddler have put it back? That's going to be a pivotal question. And prosecutors can add more charges to this. Gene Casares, thank you. Can you imagine? Boy, oh boy. Very much. Up next, we're going to be joined by a county commissioner on the other top story we're talking about this morning in New Mexico. She was inside her home when it was shot at. Now police say an election denier and former Republican candidate who lost his election is responsible. We're going to get reaction from her. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, a former Republican candidate in New Mexico is under arrest and facing charges in connection with a series of shootings targeting the homes of local Democratic elected officials. Solomon Pena is an election-denying Trump-supporting Republican who did not concede his state House race, even though he lost in a landslide in November. And police say that he paid other people to carry out four shootings before also taking part in the last one himself. This type of radicalism is a threat to our nation, and it has made its way to our doorstep right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But I know here we are going to push back, and we will not allow this to cross the threshold. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, this was about a right-wing radical, an election denier who was arrested today, and someone who did the worst imaginable thing you can do when you have a political disagreement, which is turn that to violence. That should never be the case. The attacks on two state legislators and two county commissioners began in December after Pena showed up to their homes to protest his November election loss. The first shooting happened on December 4th at the Bernalillo County Commissioner Adrian Barboa's home. She's joining us now. Uh, good morning and thank you for for being here. I can't even imagine what you're feeling as you're you're seeing the developments of what happened here. But I guess my first question is just, do you believe that this was motivated by the fact that he was upset over losing his election? Yeah, I believe, you know, when from when it happened, yes, I'm still shocked. You know, when it happened, I knew that it was, you know, that's what we see most pressing was people being aggressive around denying the elections. So I feel like, yes, I, I feel like it was due to um, really larger press people thinking that, you know, ele- that this is possible, that this is OK, our elected officials that putting violence when we're in a position like this. Yeah, And he actually showed up at your house after he lost his election. When was that and what did he say to you? Yeah, he came to my house after the election and he is an election denier. He weaponized those dangerous thoughts to threaten me and others causing serious trauma. Um, Yeah, he was saying that the elections were fake, that um, really speaking erratically, I didn't feel threatened at the time, but I did feel like he was, um, you know, erratic. Do you do you feel safe now? Do you feel safer now that he's been arrested? 
I feel grateful that he's not out there to attack or target any other, anyone else. You know, I'm still shocked. Uh, you know, in New Mexico, we have actual access to our elected officials. And so I'm relieved to hear that people won't be targeted in this way by him any longer. I want to share with our viewers what you said in a statement after he was arrested. Uh, you said Solomon Pena is an election denier. He weaponized those dangerous thoughts to threaten me and others, causing serious trauma. We said when politicians at the highest levels of our government continue to make threats and violence a regular part of the public discourse, it has real impacts on our democracy and our lives. What does all of this say to you about political extremism in the United States? You know, when politicians at our highest level of government continue to make threats and violence a regular part of public discourse, it has real impacts on our democracy and our real lives. I was shots came through my home right where I had just hours before been playing with my granddaughter. And you were saying that your your daughter doesn't feel safe bringing your granddaughter over since that. Yeah, I just, you know, it's been painful to be a brand new grandma and uh, my daughter does such a great job bringing her over and for the last month and a half hasn't because of this, right? Yeah, well, Commissioner, we're sorry that you had to go through this and this is even something that we're having a conversation about, but we're really glad that you came on to share your experience with us, Commissioner Adrian Barboa. Thank you. Thank you. Too many of us experience this. We must change it. Yeah. Thank you so much. She's right. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. The U.S. is just days away from hitting its debt limit. So what are lawmakers doing about it? Senator Chris Coons is going to join us live from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. And a surreal rescue at sea. Passengers on a cruise ship saving migrants who were stranded on a boat. Wait till you see it. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. Sober, curious bars? What is driving millennials and Gen Z to alcohol-free hotspots? We'll discuss that straight ahead. We're going to get reaction to the Internet's wild interpretations of the new MLK Jr. statue in Boston. The sculptor will join us live. Plus, why schools in Virginia are withholding awards from students. Also this morning, China says it's in talks with the U.S. ahead of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's highly anticipated visit to the country next month. Blinken is reportedly set to meet with the Chinese foreign minister February 5th and 6th. It comes as the U.S. and China continue to butt heads over issues including trade, Taiwan, Beijing's human rights record. Chinese officials say they are working with the United States on Blinken's itinerary and they hope country, the countries can, quote, resume a healthy and stable course of development. Only two days until the United States is expected to hit its debt limit. That is bad, but the Treasury Department can move money around to keep us from defaulting on our debt, at least for now. But those so-called extraordinary measures, they only last a few months. After that, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has a dire warning. Defaulting would cause irreparable harm to the United States economy, the livelihoods of all Americans, and global financial stability. She's talking about you, your money, your mortgage, your job, in addition to Wall Street and the global markets. And this warning comes ahead of what could potentially be the most bitter political fight we have seen yet on raising the debt ceiling. House Speaker McCarthy says he will not raise it without conditions. What does he want? 
Spending cuts, even though the debt limit is about money already spent, not new spending. So let's talk about this and a lot more with uh, Democratic Senator from Delaware, Chris Coons. He is in beautiful Davos, Switzerland, at the World Economic Forum. Of course, you're there to have these discussions, Senator, about the economy, but also to keep a light shining on the war in Ukraine. So thank you for your time this morning. Um, and let's, let's begin with the debt ceiling. Um, here is the position of the White House on what McCarthy is saying. Let's play it. We will not be uh, be doing any negotiation over the debt ceiling. It is one of the basic items that Congress has to deal with, and it should be done without condition. So there is going to be uh, there's going to be uh, no negotiation over it. This is something that must get done. So if, no, McCarthy says no clean bill on the floor for the debt ceiling. The White House says no negotiation. So where does that leave our country about to default? Poppy, this puts us at real risk. Um, in the next six months, at some point, Treasury Secretary Yellen will run out of those extraordinary measures and our bill comes due. And for us to even come close to defaulting on paying America's national debt, uh, I think would be reckless and irresponsible. I agree with the White House that we shouldn't be negotiating over paying bills that we have already incurred. So raising the debt ceiling, as you know, as you said in the opening there, is simply paying for things that have already been spent. So federal investments in our defense, in housing and education, in infrastructure. Uh, we can and should have a robust debate about spending going forward, mm -hmm. if that's what the new House majority would like. Uh, but to threaten to not pay America's debts would put all of us at risk. You have been a proponent, at least you were in 2017, when you uh, introduced a bill to eliminate the debt ceiling. You've been a proponent of doing that. Um, Treasury Secretary Yellen is actually sort of in your camp now. She testified before the House that she also uh, believes that at, at this point, it just doesn't make sense to leave it in Congress's hand to take us to the brink like this. But President Biden just a few months ago called eliminating the, de the debt ceiling irresponsible. Do you think he's wrong? Well, perhaps I misunderstand the context in which uh, that quote's been taken. Well, let um, me play I do it. think let that me play it for uh, you. President Biden likely agrees. I, I can play it sure. for you just so we all have the context. Do you support the permanent repeal of the debt ceiling, sir? The permanent repeal of the debt ceiling? What Not do you mean? Yes. You mean just say we don't have a debt limit? No debt No. I'd be irresponsible. Your thoughts? Well, what I've been speaking to over the past decade is um, when we've got a Congress that does not um, agree that we ought to pay for America's debts, uh, we invite this sort of gamesmanship. So that's what was behind my introduction of a piece of legislation five years ago now uh, that would remove this, that would presume that we have automatically raised the debt ceiling every time we appropriate additional money. There's a slight difference between what I'm saying and the president saying um, but I'm not saying that we shouldn't appropriate and be accountable uh, to our constituents for what we appropriate. Um, but I'm saying that we ought to be raising the debt limit as we appropriate. Um, and so there is an implicit agreement there that we should continue to have a debt limit. Just when and how it gets raised is yeah. the difference between what we're saying. Understood. An important distinction. Th thank you for that. Let's let's move on to uh, the, the classified documents found at several different locations of the president's. Um, and, and I want to ask you about any national security concerns 
you may have, given what has been located in about 20 documents, some of which have been marked top secret. Yesterday, we had former Defense Secretary Mark Esperon, and he told us he is concerned. He was concerned about the Trump documents at Mar-a-Lago, and he's concerned about these for national security. And I wonder if you share that national security concern. Look, Poppy, I think Attorney General Merrick Garland is playing this straight down the middle, um, having appointed special counsel uh, to oversee both the ongoing investigation of the former president's uh, mishandling of classified documents uh, and these classified documents that have just come to light. Uh, and I expect as we get to know the facts better in the months ahead, we'll better understand uh, what, if any, risk there was uh, to national security. Of course, I respect the importance of proper handling of classified documents. And I think at this point, we're simply going to have to wait to hear uh, what the special counsel concludes uh, about the facts in this case. You just spent uh, several days at the border. A bipartisan delegation went there. And when you came back, you described what you saw uh, as this. You said, we cannot continue with a system that empowers smugglers or puts migrants in danger. I wonder if you would describe what you witnessed as a crisis at the southern border? Well, Poppy, I'd say that a bipartisan group of us, eight senators, Republicans, Democrats, one independent, went to El Sal excuse me, went to El Paso, went to Yuma um, to see the different circumstances at different places in the border. Um, at different points in time, we've had um, waves of folks uh, who have overwhelmed uh, the processing capability uh, of the Border Patrol. And that has caused real challenges, real harm to those border communities. Uh, President Biden, while we were in El Paso, uh, was in Mexico City meeting with uh, the heads of state of both Mexico and Canada um, to try and make progress on resolving this longstanding challenge uh, for the region of having waves of migrants coming um, from destabilized or oppressive regimes throughout um, Central America and South America. This is a longstanding problem, uh, decades in the making. And one of the more encouraging parts of the trip to Davos that I'm currently on, mm -hmm. um, leading a bipartisan delegation, is some of the positive conversations we've had about how we might move forward in a bipartisan way uh, to tackle the real challenge of migration. That's good that you feel like you've had uh, conversations that may indicate some progress because it has been decades since there's been real comprehensive well, immigration reform. Bobby, but what, I, yeah? what I hear from folks in Delaware is that they are eager eager for us to find a solution and to quit uh, pointing fingers at each other and to come uh, with some path forward. So, Senator, let me just wrap, wrap up with this, because um, four of your fellow Democratic senators, Democrats in, in, in the Senate, are really disappointed that the Biden administration has essentially expanded Title 42. Uh, and they write they're deeply disappointed by this. And they think this latest move on the southern border, where you just were, will increase border crossings over time and further enrich human smuggling networks. Do you share that same concern? Well, what they're responding to um, is a temporary um, solution or an attempt at some um, solution by uh, the Biden administration. Um, President Biden called for congressional action so that we could find a more balanced, sustainable, long-term solution to the migration challenges we have at our border. That's the direction I think we need to go. I understand um, the critiques of my colleagues about an expansion mm -hmm. of Title 42. Um, that's why I would hope that they would join with a bipartisan group to try and legislate a longer-term solution. I think everyone hopes that is to come. Senator Chris Coons, I wish you productive meetings there.
in the mountains of Switzerland. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Poppy. Yeah, jealous of that backdrop. Uh, me too. Uh, all right, a cruise ship this morning has rescued 17 migrants who were stranded on a boat adrift near the Bahamas. Royal Caribbean officials say that they launched the rescue operation when the vessel was spotted on Saturday. The crew provided those who were rescued with medical attention. They're working closely with the Coast Guard on this. And the rescue comes amid a surge of Cuban and Haitian migrants trying to make it to the United States. So far, we're monitoring this, but officials have not identified where these migrants are from. Of course, that's going to be one of the many questions they have. Yes, well, coronavirus deaths are once again on the rise all across the United States. 33 states are showing increases of up to 50% or more deaths this week compared to last week. In a Washington Post op-ed, senior medical analyst and former Baltimore Health Commissioner Dr. Lena Wen asks, are some of these Americans dying from COVID or with COVID, dying from COVID or with COVID? That's the distinction. She goes on to say, two infectious disease experts I spoke with believe that the number of deaths attributed to COVID is far greater than the actual number of people dying from COVID. So let's bring Dr. Lena Wen in to talk about her, her op-ed. Uh, doctor, thank you so much. Listen, and I, I know that you don't want to, and we don't want to underplay the risk of COVID after three years. It is still a leading cause of death in this country. It's the story I just read about the number of deaths uh, increasing. Can you explain, and infections, can you explain why you believe COVID deaths are being overcounted? I think it's important for us to be intellectually honest in this case, and that includes recognizing that circumstances have changed. At the beginning of the pandemic, we had a situation where there were many people dying from COVID pneumonia, including healthy young people were dying because of severe shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, they were hospitalized because of it. Then as a result of vaccines and as a result of a lot of people getting COVID and having some level of immunity to it, we're seeing far fewer cases of that kind of severe COVID and severe COVID pneumonia specifically. And yet hospitals are still routinely testing everyone who's getting admitted for COVID. And so we're seeing many people who are hospitalized with COVID. And I think it's important to separate out who is being hospitalized because of it, because there are a lot of people who are still very concerned about their risk from COVID. And we need to give them um, the most accurate data possible so that they can better gauge their risks. And there are people who are still not resuming indoor dining or going to the gym or socializing. And I think we have to give them the most accurate reporting possible. Just a quick follow. You're not suggesting that hospitals stop checking people, testing people for COVID if they come in. That's right. I think that there's a better way to do this. And actually, one of the people that I interviewed was Shira Duran, who is an infectious disease physician and hospital epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center. She and her colleagues came up with a different measure, which is using dexamethasone. So dexamethasone is a steroid that's used to treat cases of severe COVID. And she and her colleagues found that in cases of hospitalizations that do not involve dexamethasone, it's very unlikely that the primary cause is COVID. And so the state of Massachusetts actually turned to use this measure. So they're reporting both the total hospitalizations with COVID as well as the total hospitalizations with dexamethasone, which are the hospitalizations for which COVID is the primary cause. And they found that about 30% of the current hospitalizations are actually for COVID as opposed to 70% with COVID. So I think that's the kind of distinction that we need to be making that helps hospitals better gauge what's going on in their own system and it allows people to understand their own risks a lot better, too. Well, and also, the, Doctor, these are two separate things here, overcounting deaths and overcounting hospitalizations. 
as you know, I covered this closely being in the Trump White House when this happened. I talked to a lot of health officials about this who are actually kind of skeptical of this claim that you're making. And I think one big thing has been what is the evidence that these COVID deaths are actually being overcounted? Well, this is the reason why this kind of transparent reporting is going to be so important. There is a way for us to look at death certificates and also to look at the medical records of individuals prior to their death. And I think this needs to be separated into three categories. One is the um, the COVID as a direct contributor, the primary cause of death. The second is, could it be a secondary contributing cause? So for example, somebody with kidney disease, COVID then pushes them over the edge to have kidney failure. That's COVID as a contributing cause. And then the third is COVID as an incidental finding. So somebody coming in with a gunshot wound or a heart attack and they happen to test positive. I think that we need to separate out and look at the percentages of each. That percentage would have shifted over time as well. In the beginning, probably a lot more people were dying with the primary cause of COVID. That probably has shifted. And I think, again, we need to understand this. Another reason to understand this, too, is a lot of people are wondering when they should get a booster next. When do we need a second booster or another booster? And the only way we can know for sure is to understand who is getting severely ill and when. But doesn't that change who should get boosters? Doesn't it depend on your age and your conditions that you have, preconditions, anything like that? That's exactly right. And I think that's why we need to have this accurate accounting of who exactly is getting severely ill. If we find that the people who are getting severely ill are all individuals with certain underlying medical conditions, but not others, that allows us to better um, advise those individuals to take special precautions. By the way, none of this is to minimize the risk of COVID. There are still so many millions of Americans who are severely immunocompromised, who have chronic underlying medical conditions, who really desperately need better vaccines and better treatments. I'm saying that we need to have better data so as to um, so as to focus our attention on these people who are truly vulnerable and allow others who have put their lives on hold to maybe resume a lot of things that um, that they might be too scared to do at the moment. There is a new study, doctor, uh, just emphasizing how at risk pregnant women and their babies are from from COVID-19. I'm sure you saw it. I mean, they tracked 13,000 pregnant women. Um, and I just wonder if you're concerned for people at risk like that or other vulnerable groups that this give, can give fodder to, um, to conspiracy theorists, to those who downplay COVID, to anti-vaxxers. I'm sure you, you, know, you thought about that, right, as you, were, as you were writing this. Are you worried about that? It's interesting that I have had criticism on both sides. There are people who have said, well, why are you saying that we're overcounting COVID deaths now? You should have said this two and a half years ago. There are others who have said, well, we're not overcounting them, and they give various reasons as to why. I think at the end of the day, we just need the truth. And part of that truth is what you mentioned, Poppy, which is that vaccines are highly protective, that vaccines are very effective, they're very safe, and vulnerable groups, including pregnant women, pregnant individuals, should be getting vaccinated. At the same time, we should also be honest about who was dying from COVID during the early parts of the pandemic versus who is dying from COVID now. I think that type of honest, transparent reporting is really important, including for fostering trust in public health. Mm-hmm. I, listen, to be clear, though, and it says in, in your um in your op-ed, the COVID death count turns out, if it turns out to be 30 percent of what is currently reported, that is still unacceptably high. Yeah. 
That's exactly right. And there are still so many other people who are dying because of the pandemic. When you look at the excess deaths, the predicted number of deaths versus the actual number of deaths now, we're still having a lot of people who are dying. They're dying from overdoses. They're dying from suicide. They're dying because of their health care was disrupted and cancer screenings and diabetes management was delayed. But I think that if we attribute all those deaths to COVID, we're actually missing many of these structural issues in our healthcare system that have to be addressed. So that's why that honest, um, transparent reporting um, and a systematic, standardized approach across the country is going to be really important. Dr. Lina Wen, thank you. Certainly got all of us talking this morning. Yeah. Thank you, doctor. Appreciate that. Next, what is driving a young crowd to booze free bars? Mm. We'll speak to a bar owner in New York who's ditching the alcohol. <laughs> I can relate to that. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, picture this. Some of us may not want to. Picture it's a bar <laughs> without alcohol. Might sound unusual, but the idea is actually gaining steam as sales of non-alcoholic beer, wine, and spirits, and other usually alcoholic drinks have jumped actually 20% between August 2021 and August 2022. Now in New York City, you can go to non-alcoholic bars, including one called Hecket. We are joined by the owner, Abby Emmon. Abby, this is fascinating. I know a lot of people are doing sober January right now, so this is actually incredibly relevant. But you say that you never actually had the idea for this to be a bar that sold alcohol, but you wanted it to be this gathering space for people who, who don't drink. Right. I own a regular bar right across the street. So <laughs> opening this this bar, I never had any intention of having a liquor license because I would have been competing with myself. So the idea was to do something completely different. So so you are doing something totally different. But do people come in there thinking it's a completely bar? What is yes. what does that look like? When we first opened, people were coming in and asking, give me a gin and tonic, and then I'd have to, there was a long learning curve. But as soon as I started to get press and people knew what the deal was and they became a more educated consumer over these, these past few months, um, people come in now and they know what, more what to expect. You did this, Don did that 14 months? I started with dry January and I felt so great that, um you know, I, I went for 14 months during the pandemic, which was a perfect time because people were drinking a lot. I'm like, you know, I'm going to do the exact opposite and didn't drink or anything. But my question is, why did you do it? Because I noticed when I was sober, it was hard to get. Basically, it was just fruit juice. And, and you know, I started gaining weight from all the sugar that I was drinking. So why, why, did, why did you do it? Um, well, uh, I'm not sober myself. It's just this place is sober. And the initial concept was, you know, magical elixirs. And I, you know, even with the business plan, I had no idea that there were all these products out there. And even just in the past year, there, you know, have been more products and that are all geared towards sobriety, some which mimic actual alcohol and some which are just, you know, oddly fermented or weirdly distilled herbal concoctions that will make you feel like you're having an adult beverage. They aren't juices and they're not fattening and most of them are almost free of calories. You want to make us one? I heard there's like a special one you've got for us this morning. Is this a lemon poppy well, Collins? I, it, it, a lemon poppy Collins is what we want. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> there, 
Well, they're, they're all a little um, time consuming, so I won't make one on camera, but I will show you our biggest seller, which okay. is called the Healer. Okay. And th this is sort of a cheat because we are, I'm not kidding you, out of almost all the ingredients because the, this past weekend was crazy and I haven't <laughs> had time to replenish all the supplies. <laughs> Even some of the, the, uh, you know, the products that I have We've run out of everything because the demand's been so high and trying to reorder has been impossible because they haven't been able to keep up with the demand. This dry January has snowballed into the driest January on record. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Really uh, good. So cool. Yeah. I will come. I think your tagline could be like, you will feel better in the morning. I promise. Yeah. Abby, thank you. Thank you, Abby. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> thank I think you. It's good to examine Cheers. our relationship with alcohol. Cheers to you. Thank you, Abby. Appreciate it. So moving on now, he knew him as Anthony DeVolder. Now a former friend and roommate of George Santos is calling out the congressman's lies. He's going to join us next. Good morning. He ranted about a rigged election. Now a losing Republican candidate behind bars accused of orchestrating the shootings at homes of Democratic officials. An Indiana University student stabbed on a bus because she is Asian. That is according to the suspect who told investigators, quote, it would be one less person to blow up the country. New CNN reporting this morning, other locations connected to President Biden may be searched as more classified documents have been found at his home and office. The terrifying near miss. Two planes nearly colliding at JFK Airport after a wrong turn. In moments, we're taking you live inside a flight simulator to show how this happened. And did 45-year-old Tom Brady just play his last game in the NFL? What last night's loss means for his future? Also this. Extra point is pushed wide right. Have to try to stop the run. Easy touchdown. Extra points. Wow is missed again. And now Maher misses again. He's missed three tonight, four in a row. And he has done it again. It took five tries. Everyone has a bad day. CNN This Morning starts right now. Everyone has a bad day, but we hope yours is going well so far. We're going to begin with the fail. Former Republican State House candidate Solomon Pena, he was angry that he lost the election last fall and claimed that the vote was rigged. Now he is in police custody in connection with orchestrating four shootings at the homes of local Democratic officials in New Mexico. No one was injured in any of the shootings that happened in Albuquerque. Police say that Pena was the mastermind and allegedly conspired and paid four others to carry out the attacks. The evidence that we have is not only firearm, but it's also from cell phones and electronic records, surveillance video, and uh, multiple witnesses inside and outside of this conspiracy that have helped us weave together uh, what occurred. On the last shooting, we now have evidence, too, that Pena himself went on this shooting and actually pulled the trigger on at least one of the firearms that was used. This particular shooting took place at a state Senator Linda Lopez's home. The gun Pena was using malfunctioned, but authorities say another shooter at the scene shot a dozen rounds. 
Pena, an election denier, visited three of the targets unannounced in November after he lost his election for state house. Later that month, he tweeted in support of former President Donald Trump, declaring that he never conceded his race, even though he lost in a landslide 48 points behind his opponent. Here's Albuquerque's mayor. This type of radicalism is a threat to our nation, and it has made its way to our doorstep right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But I know here we are going to push back, and we will not allow this to cross the threshold. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, this was about a right-wing radical, an election denier who was arrested today, and someone who did the worst imaginable thing you can do when you have a political disagreement, which is turn that to violence. That should never be the case. Opinion's first target was Bernalillo County Commissioner Adrian Barboa, who said that she discovered the gunshots at her home on December 4th after returning from Christmas shopping. Barboa spoke to CNN this morning just moments ago. When politicians at our highest level of government continue to make threats and violence a regular part of public discourse, it has real impacts on our democracy and our real lives. I was Shots came through my home right where I had just hours before been playing with my granddaughter. It's been painful to be a brand new grandma and uh, my daughter does such a great job bringing her over and for the last month and a half hasn't because of this. Those comments coming as, of course, you know what's happening at the White House this morning. They're still dealing with questions about classified documents. You saw the developments happening over the weekend. And the documents in President Biden's possession is House Republicans are demanding to know, you know, does he have more documents at other locations? So far, his team has searched his two private homes in Delaware, his office at a think tank in Washington. But now multiple sources are telling CNN that additional searches could happen at other properties linked to the president. Close allies of President Biden's are saying the White House has been hobbled by unforced errors. CNN's MJ Leave is live at the White House. MJ, I know you and our colleague Kevin Liptak have been doing some reporting on behind the scenes at President Biden's frustration and how this is all being handled. Yeah, Caitlin, you know, as the story has consumed the White House over the last week, uh, we are learning that President Biden himself has grown frustrated by what he sees as a story that has overshadowed what had been a positive streak for the administration. And meanwhile, for White House aides, who for many of whom, remember, didn't even know about the story until a week ago, uh, there is a mood of quiet resignation, that there's sort of a it is what it is mentality as they, too, wait to see if more classified documents could surface. And what's been striking and reporting the story over the last week is how even some of the president's closest allies have wondered out loud why the White House hasn't been more forthcoming and sooner. For example, I spoke with former Senator Doug Jones, who, of course, is a close ally of the president's. He was actually a top contender to be his attorney general. Uh, he told me that the White House had made some unforced errors. He said, uh, once you make a statement, once you have the facts, you have to be full and complete. They weren't full and complete. Gosh, come on, y'all. You have to do a better job. When things like this happen, that's exactly what I would say. Of course, he used a different word, as you can see there. Uh, Jones did tell me, however, that he does think that the lawyers did handle everything appropriately, at least by going directly to the National Archives once they did find that first batch of classified documents. And MJ, one question Republicans have had is who could have been around these documents at these locations? I know one thing that was raised over the weekend were Republicans asking the White House if there were some kind of visitor log uh, that they had at these private residences. And the White House has responded. What did they say? 
They said that the visitor's log simply don't exist. That was the response we got from the White House Counsel's Office. And the U.S. Secret Service has also said, look, a president's residence, uh, private residence remains private, so there are no visitor's logs. Uh, I think in general what we are seeing as sort of a theory of the case from the White House is that they do not think that public disclosure of any information while this investigation is ongoing is productive. They really just don't want to interfere. And I think we're seeing that coming from everyone from the president on down. You know, he spoke at this ML MLK Day breakfast yesterday, and when he spoke privately with Reverend Al Sharpton, uh, I spoke with him yesterday, he said that he didn't once bring up the classified documents issue. And when he did bring up House Republicans to uh, Sharpton, he said that it wasn't to talk about the investigations that they're promising, but to talk about the fact that he wants to reach out to Republicans to talk about an issue like voting rights. So uh, again, everyone from the president on down uh, really reticent to discuss this issue in public. Yeah, they say they're doing that as the investigation is ongoing. MJ Lee, thank you for that update. So an Indiana woman charged in the stabbing attack on an Asian-American student allegedly said that she was motivated by race. Billy Davis, who is white, is charged with attempted murder and aggravated battery. Police say she told them she stabbed the 18-year-old Indiana University student repeatedly in the head because she was Chinese. Bryn Gengrass is tracking the case for us. Good morning. Bryn, this is disturbing. It's, what is going on? What happened? It should not happen, and it did. On Indiana University, a forest student, 18-year-old, uh, near their campus in Bloomington, uh, Indiana. So what we're told by police is that 18-year-old was riding the city bus when this suspect was also on the bus, 56-year-old Billy Davis. And as that student was exiting the bus... This suspect gets up with a knife in her hand and either attempts or does actually stab this student seven times, according uh, to the police records, before the student was able to get off, receive medical care. It's unclear how she is doing this morning. Uh, but now you can see that suspect right there, 56-year-old Billy Davis. She has been arrested and she has been charged with attempted murder, among other charges. And as Don said, she told police she attacked this particular student, saying she did it because she was, quote, Chinese and also said this, quote, it would be one less person to blow up our country. That is what police say she actually told them when they interviewed her. So, Bren, you know, we've been reporting over the course of the pandemic, the whole idea of the, remember the China flu and then the yeah. rise of, this is just a, one in an increase of anti-Asian crimes. Yeah. happening in our country. And it got worse, of course, just like you're saying. After coronavirus, we were seeing many of these, right? But we were seeing them more in the cities, and there's actually research that was done in the major 16 cities of the United States that from the first quarter of 20 to 2020, 2020 to 2021, uh, attacks against Asian Americans went up 164%. Jeez. That is an astronomical number. Now, of course, what you're seeing here is that we know this happens everywhere, but this seeping into middle America, into a college campus, um, this obviously, this campus reeling, they're getting a lot of support, putting out a statement that says, of course, we all stand together as we do with them as well. Right on. Thank you, Brent. All right. Thank you very much. The FAA is opening an investigation into a very near collision Friday between two planes at New York's JFK International Airport. The Delta Airlines pilot who was about to take off with the plane full of passengers headed to the Dominican Republic, but had to come to an abrupt stop when an American Airlines plane unexpectedly crossed right in its path on the runway. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff plans. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff plans. Rejecting. 
Thankfully, nobody was injured in that incident. The flight to Santo Domingo was delayed until the following day. But how did something like this even happen? Let's get a better understanding. Uh, joining us now is the pilot, is a pilot, founder, and instructor at SimTech Aviation, Julian Alarcon. Thank you very much for being with us. So, how can this happen? The, you know, we're humans. At the end of the day, we make mistakes, um, and we mitigate those mistakes by training. And uh, we as pilots are expected to perform at the, our highest level every flight that we do. Um, in this case, the American Airlines did some, was at the wrong place at the wrong time. I didn't follow the instructions of air traffic control. So air traffic would be telling the pilots then in the, in the American Airlines plane, stop or don't go, right? There's another plane about to take off and they just perhaps didn't hear? Is that how something like this happens? Uh, yeah, you actually gotta backtrack a little bit because they were given an instruction to hold at a certain intersection, uh, and that intersection is where they were supposed to make the right turn. Uh, when they were given the instruction to close, uh, cross the runway, they crossed the wrong runway at the wrong intersection. Oh, boy. Listen, we don't want to, this is, at the bottom line, this is very scary and could have had dire consequences. How dangerous is a situation like this uh, for everyone involved? Can you show us a simulator? It, it, uh, of course, the, um, the, the, uh, it's, it's a very dangerous situation, especially is because uh, it's a JFK and any major airport is pretty big. And we can see here at the intersection, this is the runway they were supposed to cross. And they crossed the take the runway, the active runway, the runway that airplanes were taking off from. Um, so it, it is a pretty big deal, and that's why the FAA and the NTSB and the airlines are going to be conducting a, a very deep investigation, not only to know what happened in, in the inside the flight deck, but also how to prevent this incidents from happening in the future. Well, and I think one question is about the flight recorders that they have, but. One concern that I've heard is that they only record a certain amount of time, about two hours, I believe. People have pushed for it to be longer. Is this a situation where it's clear that something like that should be changed? Like, what changes changes do you believe should come as a result of this? Because, yeah, it's a near miss, but it could have been catastrophic. So the, uh, uh, to be honest, the, the, I don't know about changing the rule of two hours, the one thing that I do know is the pilots in the American flight, uh, because this was a, a, an incident for the pilot deviation, they are, they are going to be expected to fill out a report. And if, and, and if any of us, any pilot lies on those reports, that's when actually a bigger actions get taken into uh, effect. Um, but at the end of the event, they're going to be, they're, they're filling out a report. And if anybody lies, that's the, that's the biggest deal because they're going to conduct an investigation and investigators are very good at what they do and finding out the root cause of the incident. All right. Thanks for unpacking. But I mean, we have you here in a simulator. Can you show us what happened? Have you put a scenario together for us? Can you take us through? Of course. Uh, so at the moment, we are just short of the intersection where they were supposed to be holding short and making the right turn. And we can see the signs here where they are on Alpha, the taxiway, and they're supposed to be making the ride on Kilo. So uh, would you like me to show you what they were actually were supposed to do? Yes, of course. Yeah, so in this case, all they were supposed to do uh, was supposed to be making a right turn here. Cause the, and they were supposed to be crossing runway 3-1 left. 
and now here, I'll bring it to a stop just to point something out. Uh, and this is normally a uh, airline technique, and any pilot training will also do the same before we cross any runways. Not only do we have the big signs on the ground, but we also have the runway identifier. And in this case, before we cross the runway, we should have been recrossing 3-1 left. Uh, clear to cross 3-1 left. And before we cross the runway, make sure there's no airplanes on the left or on the, uh, or on the right uh, coming this way. So then what actually happened? So this is exactly what it was supposed to happen. That was supposed uh, to. Let me reposition the simulator. Yeah, let me reposition the simulator. Uh, so this is actually what ended up happening. They were supposed to be making a right, but they actually continue going straight to the to the take to the active runway. In this case, it was runway four left. And I'll bring it to a stop here. So the while the the, the if you listen to the audio tapes, you can actually hear the first officer, which is the pilot who normally works the radios, actually saying uh, clear uh, kilo culture of three one left. And in this case, they're actually were crossing four left. And on the map is different, and even on the iPad, which all our, our airline pilots have access to them, we have the chart saying that is clearly going to be the wrong runway. But uh, incidents do happen. We're humans at the end of the day. Um, but Julie, and that's how why we common, have markings on, everywhere to minimize this kind of incidents. How common is something yes, like this? Uh, it's not very common. Um, uh, anywhere near an active runway, it's a, um, it's, it's a, it, we treat it very carefully. It's because of this type of incidents. Um, so generally speaking, when we're going to cross a runway, all pilots are looking out the window. In the case of the American flight that we're going to London, I believe there should have been three pilots on board. Uh, however, it's a team working together, and delays on communication could have had happened, but it's not very, it doesn't happen very often. Well, that's good to know, but hopefully yeah. it doesn't happen at all. Julian so, Alarcone, yeah, thank you so much for, for showing us that simulation. That was, yeah. that was really interesting. Thank you, Julian. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Also this morning, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is now claiming he's always had questions about George Santos and his resume. We're actually going to speak to Santos's former friend and roommate next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, now House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he's always had some doubts about George Santos's resume. Listen. When were you first made aware about some of these allegations around Santos? I never know all about his resume or not, but I always had a few questions about it. I always had a few questions about it. If that is true, he did not share any of those questions or concerns right after Election Day when he tweeted this, quote, George Santos will be a great leader and conservative voice for the people, close quote. McCarthy also didn't raise any objections when uh, then next week when he hailed Santos's Jewish heritage and another claim that turned out to be a lie. Here was that moment. I really want to talk about who's the makeup of this new majority. You heard from some of all already. You know, with Max Miller in Ohio, George Santos in New York, and you had David Kustoff from Tennessee get reelected. He introduced him. Do you realize we have the largest Republican Jewish caucus in more than 24 years? McCarthy's downplayed the revelations about Santos and how he fabricated, lied about so many details about his background, even as he's come under intense scrutiny and the scrutiny of prosecutors. 
and McCarthy acknowledged that he may not get a security clearance. I don't see any way that he's going to have top secret. If you're referring to George Santos, he's got a long way to go to earn trust. But the one thing I do know is you, you apply the Constitution equal to all Americans. The voters of his district have elected him. We should note some of the lies from Santos even extended to McCarthy himself after it was reported that earlier in 2021, an aide to Santos was caught impersonating McCarthy's chief of staff while soliciting campaign donations. It happened, and I know um, they corrected, but I was not notified about that till uh, a later date. Yeah, I didn't know about it till a later date, though, unfortunately. Well, something wasn't adding up. The way George Santos talked about himself and the life he led, that is according to a former friend and roommate who took this photo of the future congressman. This was back in 2014. But then Santos went by his middle name back then, Anthony DeVolder, the former friend Gregory Maury Parker rented space from him in a Queens apartment he shared with his family. He even grew close with Santos' mother. You can see them there, right there in that photograph. And according to him, she wasn't pleased with the lifestyle her son was trying to portray. She would roll her eyes and say, Anthony and his stories. As Santos faces a growing pressure to resign from Congress over his lies, we're learning more about the stories that he told to a when he was a younger man, uh, and his family's wealth and his business success. We'll continue to follow this story. We're back in a moment. So as we were talking about just before the break, we we're learning more about the lies New York Congressman George Santos told as a younger man about his family's wealth and his business success. His former roommate, Gregory Maury Parker, joins us now. Uh, and in full transparency, a little technical difficulty there. And so we're glad you're here and that you're able to hear us loud and clear. You good? Yes, I am. Good morning, Don. Good Thank morning, you. Bobby. Good morning. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Listen, you knew Santos for a number of years, starting in 2013. How did you end up living in the same house? So my lease in Astoria was up um, in Queens, and he was like, oh, well, you know, the New York rental market is ridiculous. Come stay with me for, you know, a month or two while we get everything, you know, sorted out and try to find you a place. And I was like, oh, OK. Um, so I took him up on it, moved in. Um, it was uh, definitely an interesting interesting few months. <laughs> well, explain that to us. What was he like back then? Why do you say it was interesting? Well, he, um, I suppose the, the biggest thing that I took away from it was like just delusions of grandeur. Like he, he would just go to bars with, you know, like rolls of hundred dollar bills. And, you know, three days later he would have no money or, you know, he would constantly be saying, oh, well, you know, I, I'm going to sell my phone. I'm going to sell my phone. Do you know anybody who wants to buy it? And, you know, I'm like, well, why are you selling it? And he's like, oh, well, don't worry about it. And it's just things just started continuously spiraling and getting like kind of ridiculously crazy. Um, you know, his mother was um, a housekeeper in, in Manhattan and it just didn't seem feasible for him supposedly to, to come from all this uh, generational wealth, if you will. And what, it, why is 
why are you doing the things that you're doing? It, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, well um, he, was, he had made allegations that he came from generational wealth, and you're saying that his mother was a housekeeper in the city, in, in Manhattan. Yeah. Um, so people are going to wonder, and also, you know, he, he, you knew him at, through another name, right? The last name, DeVolder. Yes, I'm, I've, I've always known him as Anthony DeVolder. I've yeah. never known him as George Santos. Um, I was actually quite surprised. I guess he, you know, went by his middle name and his mother's name. Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've always known him as, as Anthony DeVolder. Mm-hmm. So listen, you know, people, Greg, are going to wonder why you're coming out. They're going to say, well, that's his side of the story. And, and do need to tell our viewers that we did reach out to George Santos's representatives, his lawyers, and we haven't heard back from them. Although we have been trying since the story started to get an interview with him. He has declined. His representatives have, have declined. Uh, and even his office uh, in Washington. You say something wasn't adding up between the way that Santos talked about himself and the life that he led, right? His name, Anthony DeBolder, yeah. as you knew him, his uh, wealth and what have you. What else doesn't add up? What else? Well, just, I, I kind of assumed that he had made up, you know, about going to Baruch and NYU. Um, but then I thought, well, maybe I was wrong, you know, after the election. Um, because I'm sure the DCCC, you know, and the RNC would have you know, investigated him, and at least his opponent would have done some op research. Um, so I kind of thought, well, maybe I'm wrong, you know. Um, maybe this is just, you know, the truth, and I was incorrect. But, I mean, obviously, the you know, the truth has finally come out. Um, and I just, I, I don't understand. Did he go, like, one by one to everybody in his district and just literally pull the wool over their eyes. <laughs> yeah. Like how it's just flabbergasting. I'm wondering if this was the end of, I guess it was a Rocky relationship and it started off well. And because you, this is again, according to you, you believe that he stole a, stole a Burberry scarf from you and wore it when he gave a speech in DC on January of, of 2021. Uh, this is January 5th, 2021. One day before the Capitol attack. Now, CNN has not independently verified this claim. In the speech, Santos falsely claimed that the 2020 congressional election was stolen from him. Now, you say this is not, you know, it's more than just a stolen scarf. This is bigger than that. Did he take other things? And why are you saying this is bigger than just a scarf? Well, it just bothers me. I mean, um, he is one of the, the, you know, highest elected officials in the country you know he is responsible for for you know making the laws and yes i mean i i do miss my my stone check burberry scarf um but at the same time it's why i feel like they're not focusing enough on the issues at hand you know where where did all this money come from to finance the campaign you know why (laughs) The whole thing is just, it, it's quite bewildering to me. I mean, how he even got elected. Well, um, we, we appreciate you joining us uh, this morning. Gregory Morey Parker, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Caitlin. All right, also this morning, despite the Cowboys' 31-14 victory over Tampa Bay last night, the Cowboys kicker, Brett Maher, probably wants to forget the NFL record that he set last <laughs> night. It was definitely... Uh, I mean, you go to the playoffs, you're in the NFL playoffs, you want to set records, you miss four 
extra points. Yeah, so this morning's number is, as Caitlin was going for, <laughs> the most extra points missed by one player in one game for last night. Brett Maher setting the record. The previous record was three. I mean, I've just never seen anything like this before. I mean, to see two missed extra points in a game is something. To see three, but to see four, and not just four, but four in a row. That was the most bizarre thing I saw this entire weekend. And you know, Caitlin, I watch a ton of NFL football. When I see my kicker miss one extra point, I start throwing my cap on the side. But the fact that he missed four, I know. unbelievable. I was kind of worried for his safety. I love it. RG3 just tweeted somebody needs to go through and check yeah. his phone records. Somebody needs to go through and check his phone numbers. But, you know, the thing I'll point out was despite last night's game being so lousy, the rest of the weekend's games on the whole were actually pretty good. Yeah. So it was a seven-point median margin across the six games. It was within a touchdown. And this gets at something that I think is larger about football and why people like me are so addictive. And that is the playoff games, in particular the wild card games, are getting better over time. The median margin now just 7.5 points. That is well down from where we were 20 years ago when it was 14 points. It shrunk in half, Caitlin. Yeah, everyone's watching them. They're more competitive. It's fun to watch, of course. I mean, the Cowboys had a great game. Dak Prescott had an amazing game yeah. last night. So. He, he, he had an amazing game, but the fact is, Brett Maher had a game that he sorely wants to forget. I know, it makes me feel kind of bad. Why do you keep reminding him then? Uh, because that's my job as a person in the media is to tell the truth, Poppy, no matter so how painful the truth may actually be. Just sorry, if I was, I was him, I'd be like, can we stop? Playing all four. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, he's lucky he didn't get, like, cut at halftime or something. He's lucky the Cowboys won. That's what he's truly lucky. <laughs> and speaking of the Cowboys, that win also means that Tom Brady was eliminated from the playoffs. So now the speculation over Brady's future can officially begin right now. Brady addressing or not addressing his offseason plans. Listen to I'm going to go home and get a good night's sleep as good as I can tonight. This has been a lot of focus on, you know, this game. So, Yeah. It's just be one day at a time, truly. So uh, our Tom Brady is here ah, this morning, uh, better known as John Berman. So, John, what do you think? Yeah, together we have You're seven. You're a super fan. We have seven Super Bowl rings between us, Tom, <laughs> Tom Brady and me. Where are they? Seven. Well, he, he keeps them. We've okay. agreed that he gets to keep them and wear them, and, and I just stare at them. So what yet. do you think? I think Tom Brady's going to do whatever he wants. You know, I came down um, this morning. I went to sleep before the game was over last night because, you know, I get a lot of sleep now. Uh, and, and, I, and I said to my wife, I said, you know, Tom Brady lost last night. And she said to me very soothingly, she said, you know, that's okay. He's won a lot too. Yeah. Um, which is true. I mean, that's the truth at this point. Look, he is still one of the top five yeah. quarterbacks in the NFL. He had the most passing attempts ever this season, the third most yards for any quarterback this season. If he wants to play, he'll play. Oh, what's this mug? Oh, this is a Barry Manilow mug. <laughs> I thought that was... Oh wait, I God. think I remember when Brady. you got that. This is from Dana, Dana Bash. Bash. Yeah, right? she knows yeah. I'm a big... I have, I have a show right after this, so I had to bring my, my drinking receptacle yeah. with me. But yeah, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's my Barry Manilow The big question mug. is, is Tom Brady going to retire? And that's what everyone wants to know. Right. I think when you look at it, physically, he could still do another season. Yep. The question is, is... Mentally and emotionally, is he there? Look, he's going to be 46 next season if he plays. Ooh. Um, Old man. And, and, well, you're like, yeah, that was a long time. Can you remember 46? Caitlin's like, that's three decades from now. <laughs> um, and I'm creeping up on <laughs> yeah, it. I know. Um, he, you know, mentally, he had a tough year, right? I mean, he got divorced this year. He did not look like he was having fun flying for the Bucks. So that cuts both ways. Some people are looking at that saying, 
oh, you know, he's done. He doesn't want to deal with this anymore. And other people are saying, particularly up in Boston, where they report on his every move, he doesn't want to go out like this. You know, Tom Brady wants to go out on top. And there are a couple good teams out there that could use, you know, one of the best quarterbacks ever. I hate to disagree with my co-anchor. I don't think that's a big question. The big question was, was Giselle right? Uh, about whether he should <laughs> whether retire? he should retire. I'm, I'm joking, you know, I by think the way. that's between the two of them. Yeah. And the kids. What happens to the Bucks if he leaves? I mean, they, I think he's gone for the Bucks. I don't think a lot of people think he's staying in the Bucks. He didn't mm. have fun this year. So, yeah, they need a new quarterback. They have a lot of players coming in and out. It, it's the, the Raiders are named as a, a likely location because Josh McDaniels was his offensive coordinator. He's the head coach there. The Tennessee Titans, because Mike Vrabel, his former teammate, uh, is the coach there. So we'll see. Thanks, John Brady. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> Good one. John Thanks, Brady. John Brady. Appreciate Cheers, it. Cheers, Barry. See you. See you. <laughs> a lot of bees going on. All right. Andy, that sculpture uh, to honor Martin Luther King Jr. has sparked a yeah. lot of talk. It's a mockery. The artist who designed it will talk to us about the message. He's here in studio We're ahead. Talk about that statue. Okay, so a monument meant to honor the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta Scott King's legacy, facing some backlash. The Embrace, uh, it's called the Embrace, the statue, was unveiled Friday at the Boston Common, uh, where King gave a speech back in 1965. It was inspired by a photograph of the couple hugging after Dr. King won the Nobel Peace Prize back in 1964. So look at the hands in the picture and then look at that. The art piece designed by conceptual artist Hank Willis Thomas only features a couple's arms during the embrace and not their heads, which has sparked a mixed reaction. It's not the missing heads that's the atrocity, although people glam on to that. It's a stump that looks like a penis. That's a joke. Look at this. Look, YouTubers, I'm sorry, but that's a, that looks like a giant penis right there. I'm sorry, it does. I think the artist did a great job. I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied, but it represents something that brings people together. All right, not sure why we played some of that because it's just obviously trolls, but listen, um, the, joining us now is conceptual artist behind the statue, Hank Willis Thomas. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks. Thanks. How are you? Welcome to, to see you. I got to tell you, I saw the small version and and the concept beforehand at a dinner, and I thought it was fantastic. There are lots of people who think it's fantastic, and you don't really care that this. I mean, I care because I mean, how could you not think about Dr. King and Mrs. King's legacy and not care? You know, but also. When you put art in the world, you can't control what people see. You know, I think about the Rorschach test, the inkblot test, you know, what you see says a lot about what you about see about you? the world. And so I, I, the work is meant to be gone into. It's, it's a call to action. You go in and, and be in the heart of their embrace. So what people see online, I can't really control. I love this um, because it makes you think more deeply. And I love so much focus is in a, on Dr. King and not on her, right? And it's a it's a couple and the importance of that support and power. But also you say there are so many monuments of the kings that we don't see them as real people. That was your goal here. Yeah, I wanted to capture, like, embody the feeling of love in their relationship. You know, yeah. there's a quote that really inspired this piece. And uh, it's from Mrs. King's book, My Love, My Legacy. Um, um, but it says... Uh, to, to, to me, the beloved community is a realistic vision of an achievable society, one in which problems and conflicts exist, but are resolved peacefully and without bitterness. 
The beloved community is a state of heart and mind, a spirit of hope and goodwill that transcends all boundaries and barriers and embraces all creation. So the idea of the beloved community that they talked about, that we forget about, is what I was hoping and I'm hoping, well, I know whenever I see someone go in, they feel. What does it mean for you to be able to contribute to their legacy in this way? I, it's unbelievable. Boston Commons, the oldest continuously used public space in the country, dating back to the 1600s. You know, to have a monument to descendants of slaves who were inspirational beings who will be known and talked about for centuries um, and celebrated through this work is something that I'm, I'm eternally grateful for. Okay, so a couple of rapid-fire questions. So you're happy with it? Oh, over the joke. Over no, the- there are no plans to modify or change it? No. Would you do that if, they asked, if asked? I, I mean, by who? Right. I mean, because I, I, this is a piece that was selected by the people of Boston. And this is not a uh, Hank just came and put something. Thousands of people worked on this. Thousands of people actually put it together. And no one saw this, I would say, perverse perspective. And, I mean, to bring that to the King's legacy and to, dict- is, is to dictate the making of art and the celebration of them was really strange for me. I think it's, I mean, obviously, you see what you want, as Poppy said, in the art. And um, I think sometimes the most compelling art is the controversial art or what people bring. Because I have this one piece, you know who William Popel is yeah, of in my home. Oh, yeah. And people come in, which was Rashid said, get it, I love it, I love this yeah. piece. Rashid Johnson is a friend of both of ours. So get this piece. And it is the most, it's the first thing that people talk about when they come into the house. Yeah. And so if it causes people to have a discussion, mm-hmm. then isn't it worth it? Yeah, and, and I said good art asks questions, and how you, what you see says a lot. And so what I'm asking you, what do you see? You know, I see the power of love to transform society. Other people see other things. But I really can't wait for you guys to go and see it and be inside it because that's where the awe really happens. I can't wait to take my kids. I was telling them, um, my daughter just came home. She's six, and on Friday, and she said she learned who Dr. Martin Luther King was. So to hear that through a child's voice for the first time and what he did for this country was a lot. And the last thing is that I remember when the Vietnam War Memorial came out, mm-hmm. there was a lot of controversy around that. Now it's so beloved. A lot of people see crazy things when they look at the Washington Monument. You know, so there's all kinds of ways in which these monuments have sparked various perspectives. And this is just another one of them. Such a good point. And and you make such a good point about it being a conversation starter. And really the point is to have a conversation about their legacy and about why you did this. And I'm glad that we had that conversation. Because ultimately that would, even wherever it starts, it will lead to that part where Mm -hmm. you you want it to lead. It also reminds me, I I live in Chicago. Remember when the bean was installed? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I love you and your your gorgeous wife. Thank you. Thank you. You should have brought her on. I, I should have. <laughs> the babies weren't fully up yet. <laughs> Hank Willis-Thomas, we appreciate it. Best of luck. And thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's really great to thank be you. here. All right. Well, ahead for us on CNN this morning, an entire school district in Virginia under investigation for failing to give their students the National Merit Scholarship Awards in time for college applications. Who the governor is blaming next. Virginia State Attorney General is now investigating the entire Fairfax County public school system for human rights violations, they say. The school district is accused of withholding national merit recognitions ahead of college applications over what they say is equity. The probe began with one school, but it's now been expanded to include the entire district. CNN's Athena Jones is covering this story. Okay, 
break down exactly what this dispute is over, withholding these recognitions from students, which which they would want to have when they're applying for college. A- absolutely. And so we're talking about multiple schools in the Fairfax County School District, but the the, the uh, Virginia Attorney General mentions three in particular, three high schools where they failed to tell students that they got commend- commendations from the National Merit Scholarship uh, Corporation. So these are basically honorable mentions. It means you're, you made the top 50,000 of students who took these tests, the tests you need to take in order to be able to apply for these scholarships, which is actual money. So these commendations, they, these people are out of the running for the National Merit Scholarship mm-hmm. in particular they're still able to get access to, you know, uh, private, corporate or business-sponsored scholarships. But the parents argue that this, you know, they want to at least be able to, the students want to be able at least to include this in their college applications for early decision. It is an honor. It is not exactly the same thing as taking money right out of their pockets because when it comes to these other, these other scholarships, th- those are usually applying to a limited number of people. So it's not exactly the same thing. The commendation and the scholarship are not the same thing. But the investigation is going on because because parents have sort of raised an alarm saying that they thought the schools were holding back on recognizing these students in order to not make others feel bad. Listen to what Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin had to say about this. He feels pretty strongly. They have a maniacal focus on equal outcomes for all students at all cost. And at the heart of the American dream is excelling, is advancing, is stretching and recognizing that we have students of different capabilities. This overarching effort for equal outcomes is hurting Virginia's children. And it's hurting even worse, the children that they aspire to help. So this is is part of a larger discussion that we've seen going on with uh, Virginia Governor uh, Glenn Youngkin, who ran on education issues and has talked even about changing of the admissions process at TJ. So this is the problem is that it's not clear who he's talking about, who said that they're looking for equal outcomes for everyone. I'm not certain where he's getting that from. And so there's there's a lot of debate going on with this. But the argument seems to be that they would have benefited if they could have mentioned on their college applications that they did get this recognition. Exactly. It is recognition. It's not money. It's not exactly the same thing as money. All right, Athena Jones, thank you for covering this for us. So just ahead, a new development this morning involving the missing mother from Massachusetts. Why call logs contradict what her husband's lawyers say. today's morning moment we will leave you with this a restaurant in nashville hiring people who are homeless and teaching them everything from dishwashing to running a business and offering housing counseling and medical checkups once homeless himself the executive director of the cookery brett swain was taken off the streets to work at a restaurant he's now giving that chance to others they come off the streets there's a a sense of normality if you will that they cannot trust straight away it's, the only thing that makes it seem more valid for them is that every one of us has gone through homelessness back there. What a guy. Today, 72 men have participated in the program. That's so great. That is great. That reminds, us, reminds me of um, CNN Heroes. Yes. Where I'm so happy for everyone else, but I walk away feeling like, what am I doing yeah, with my Yeah, we all life? have I need to, to do, do more. more. Uh, we're glad you're with us. We'll see you tomorrow. CNN Newsroom is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.